This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, how do managers measure up education to match a digital lifestyle and a hub of help from the Aurora Chamber of Commerce? But first, taking care of business. The Ontario government finally lifted all remaining capacity restrictions for businesses like restaurants and gyms this past Monday. Businesses that have been trying hard to recover from the devastation of COVID-19 lockdowns, shutdowns, rules, and restrictions. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the CFIB, has been very vocal about and critical of the Ontario government and its treatment of small businesses in this province through the pandemic. Ryan Malo is the Senior Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario. He joins us now on the feed. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So the CFIB has been quite vocal and really firm about its position when it comes to small businesses and the treatment of them by the Ontario government. Where do you stand now that capacity limits have been lifted? So it's certainly good news for the small business community. This is something that uh, we have been looking for really since the first lockdown, an understanding of when we could get back to full capacity. Uh, I will say there was certainly a tremendous amount of frustration from the small business community when we saw you know, big sports stadiums get back first. Uh, but it's very positive that we're here now, and now we can really start to begin small business recovery. There's one part of this that, to me, is a little on the sluggish side, and it seems to be, now we're almost a full week into this, seems to be some reticence, some reluctance on the part of customers to kind of go back to those bigger numbers in small businesses, in stores and in gyms and and in, even in restaurants at this point. Yeah, it's something that we've been tracking throughout the pandemic, and there's always been a concern about consumer confidence and sort of what that feeling would be when we could finally you know, come out of the cave 19 months later as customers. Um, it, it is a concern. And what we're looking for from government to help boost it is to be very vocal about, you know, we're not we're not just doing this for the heck of it. We've uh, gotten here to the point where we can get back to 100% capacity, um, you know, because of the vaccination numbers, because of the other public health measures that remain in place. Uh, and to really encourage people to get out to their local stores, to visit their main streets, eat at a restaurant again, because after 19 months, can tell you those businesses really need the customer support. Yeah, and you've got some pretty startling statistics. Only 37% of small businesses here in Ontario are at normal revenues, and the average debt is $190,000. Yeah, and that's just COVID-related debt, not even money that they may have taken on before. So it's certainly a, a deep hole that these last 19 months have left us in and a very, a very long way to go. So getting back to full capacity, absolutely crucial, good first step. But it's very much the first step on a long road ahead. And, you know, at this point, the feds are pulling back wage and rent support. So what should the Ontario government be doing to support small businesses? So in addition to making sure that they are talking small businesses up, we'd love to see, you know, ministers, the premier, government MPPs, opposition MPPs out and about in their communities, really, you know, showing that they too are are out there being customers again. Um, But on the financial side, One of the tough things in Ontario is, you know, we had two rounds of small business support grant funding, which were fantastic for the eligible businesses. It made a significant impact, but that program ended on April 7th. We ran into a third lockdown on April 8th, 
And the capacity restrictions that were just lifted on October 25th, that marked 200 days since April 8th that businesses were going through either full lockdown or restriction. So we would like to see another round of funding to come in to recognize that third lockdown and provide some additional support now that businesses are doing things like vaccine screening on the ground. There's some extra training, maybe some extra technology costs uh, required for doing that too. So just recognizing that there, you know, we're, we're almost to the other side of the bridge, but we still have a little ways to go and still need a little more help, especially with the federal uh, support starting to dwindle. So this past Monday, a lifting of all uh, capacity restrictions for uh, groups like gyms and restaurants where proof of vaccination is required. So there's this gray area, personal grooming, indoor areas of museums and art galleries and zoos, indoor amusement parks. They would probably like to have all capacity limits lifted, but there is that caveat, they have to be willing to ask for proof of vaccination. Is that correct? Yes, that's that's the step that they have to take. The government is willing to let them have full capacity, but only if they choose to implement the vaccine passport side of things. It is entirely an opt-in. No one is going to be closed if they decide that that's not for them. They get to keep operating as they are, but they will still continue to face those step three capacity restrictions as well. And how financially challenging is that to add that to a small business like like a hair salon to to ask for proof of vaccination? Is that difficult? It it varies by sector, but for some it's quite difficult. I mean, if you take a you know an independent gym and let's say they have twenty four hour access, normally on those off hours, you know, the early hours of the morning, it tends to be key fob access. You're a member of the gym, you have something like a, a swipe card or something on a keychain that lets you in. With the vaccine screening requirement, there has to be, by law, a physical person checking the vaccination status every time somebody comes in. So for a business like that, that's an entirely new hire that you never had before. Um, We've seen some businesses, uh, you know, put a lot of time and investment into training people how to do this, not just how to to use the app, which is relatively straightforward, but if you've got a difficult customer, there may be some de-escalation training that needs to happen there that wasn't there before. Um, or you're taking, you know, uh, more senior staff out of whatever they are doing so that they are the ones uh, that are handling it as opposed to a more junior person. And then since the QR codes have been brought in, we have also uh, seen, and we've seen this in other provinces too, that, you know, not all businesses have a company cell phone to do that check-in. A lot of them aren't comfortable with using either the business owner or an employee's personal phone, so they're having to go out and make an additional purchase. And again, it might not seem like a huge amount of money to some, but after the last 19 months, every dollar really does count at this point. So we are looking to the government to recognize and help cover some of those costs. Can I get your opinion and the CFIB's opinion on the government's timeline? So November 15th, capacity limits will be lifted for food and drink establishments with dance facilities like nights, clubs, and wedding receptions. Then we move to January 17th of next year. Uh, The province intends to begin gradually lifting capacity limits in settings where proof of vaccination is not required. February 7th, the government looking to lift proof of vaccination requirements in high-risk settings again, including nightclubs, strip clubs, bathhouses, sex clubs. By March 28th, at that point, it looks as if uh, the, uh, the guideline to wear face coverings in indoor public settings could be gone. So what does that do for a business and what is your opinion on that particular timeline on the government's part? So I think I think we and I think a lot of business owners, a lot of people in Ontario should take a lot of encouragement that the Premier and Dr. Moore were willing to set timelines, that we are in a position where they put something out there, they're willing to put something out there publicly that they feel 
confident enough to do it. I think that's a, a really good sign for where we are in the pandemic that they're willing to, to do that. That being said, we, those dates are you know, close, but also so far away that we, we just don't know. You know, if I, were, if I were a business owner, I wouldn't be circling, you know, January 17th or mid-March in my calendar just yet. Um, I think the government's aware of that too. And as we get closer to the dates, we may see a shift or we may see it reiterated that, you know, we continue to be in a good place. We're confident that that will come. Um, but I think the big takeaway is that 19 months in, the government and the chief medical officer do see this coming to an end. And I think ultimately that's very encouraging. A quick quote from your press release that you issued on October 22nd. We hope this puts an end to government policies that favor large businesses like big box stores and large sporting venues over Ontario small businesses. Will Ontario small businesses ever recover? I think ultimately as as a, a sector, Yes. I, you know, we've seen restaurants take a hard hit. We've seen retailers take a hard hit, certainly during the last holiday season where Costco and Walmart were open, but your small retailer was limited to curbside only. Um, that had a significant impact. As sectors, I think those are still going to be there. I think we are always going to have bricks and mortar retail. We're always going to have restaurants. We're always going to have gyms or dance studios. However, your favorite spot, the place on your corner, that place that has always been there, that marks home when you're driving late at night because you can see their sign uh, you know, as you pass it in your car, that's what might not be there. And that's what's at risk. So our recovery, the small businesses recovery, Ontario's recovery, really does come down to how many businesses can get back to being operational off the bat. It's not to say that that restaurant that you lose in your neighborhood won't be replaced by another restaurant. But it takes time for businesses to become profitable. It takes time for businesses to establish themselves. We have lost some, some you know, stalwarts in our communities, and that is, that is going to have an impact. I'm not sure if we've seen it all yet. It's going to have an impact economically, but it's also going to have an impact on communities and sort of sense of neighborhood community belonging. Um, and I think that's something that we need to you know, make sure that we protect as best we can uh, as we come out of the pandemic because it's, it's something we're going to need. Ryan Malo, Senior Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario Canadian Federation Independent Business. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed, Ryan. Anytime. Thanks for having me. After the break, how to accelerate your business recovery. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. As we see many business restrictions finally fully lifting with the hope that life might start getting back to normal, the Aurora Chamber of Commerce is taking it one step further. It's the Accelerate Business Recovery Hub. Here to excite, energize, explore, and explain is Sandra Ferry, President and CEO of the Aurora Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to the feed, Sandra. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me about the Accelerate Business Recovery Hub. It sounds brilliant. So it's a website designed with busy, busy business owners in mind. Uh, it's a self-serve resource that will meet the needs uh, on their schedule so that they don't have to attend sessions that are being held live. There is a partnership with the Schulich School of Business. Talk to me about how that's working in terms of the Recovery Hub. 
So we've partnered with Shulik to create content for the hub. So they have content in the areas of digital marketing, financial planning, and strategic planning. And the modules include four half-hour videos that people can watch on their own time to be informed on these topics. Why is it so important right now? Well, I think people are struggling right now with uh, finding employees. They have long work days, and it's hard for them to fit into our time schedule. So when we have a live event that happens for half an hour at 11 o'clock in the morning, that may not always be the best time for them. So this offers them an opportunity to do their learning and their training at a time that's convenient for them. Would it be all right if we explored some of the training modules? Uh, The digital marketing, boy, digital has become so important through this pandemic. It has for sure. And they talk about how to get your audience, um, how to gain your audience, how to keep your audience, how to engage with them and make sure that uh, what you're posting is relevant. Financial planning. Wow, that's a big one because so many businesses lost revenue like crazy through this pandemic. For sure. And uh, the modules will walk them through all the components of a good financial plan and things that they should be thinking about as they perhaps look at redesigning their business model and looking at how how they might have to change their business a little bit and what that means financially to them. How important is strategic planning, do you think, when it comes to recovery for businesses? Well, I think it's very important right now because, as I just mentioned, a lot of businesses have had to reimagine their business model. And this uh, framework that Shulik has developed for the strategic planning section actually gives them a framework that they can look at over and over again as they as they're business accelerates and and grows and and changes. You know, there's kind of a human touch to this, if you will. There are consultants that are there waiting to provide up to two hours of support to the business owners in their area of need, and the best part is it is free. But I'm really taken by the fact that consultants are there and willing and, and, and wanting to help. Yes, and most of these consultants are local business leaders who are uh, participating to help uh, other other businesses who are in need right now. And they can be in the area of financial planning, can be in digital marketing. We also have some mental health support for people who have struggled through the pandemic. So it's all available. They just have to go in and ask an expert. And there are Schulich School of Business Foundation certificates in business administration, and those are available to business owners who have had a really tough time through the pandemic. That's correct. If their revenue has decreased significantly through the pandemic, then we're able to offer this course to business owners free of charge. And I'm really excited about this because it lays a really good foundation of good business management skills for these businesses. And we're able to offer it free of charge to 100 businesses. And there is value to this as well. Yes, it's worth about $2,000. Let's talk about this, the videos that are created by local business leaders. Why is that significant? Well, I think it's it's just a community outreach. Um, it's businesses helping business. And I think that's really become the theme of the pandemic. Businesses have partnered to... Uh, to lift their sales, and they're partnered to help other businesses through these videos. So they'll look at a specific niche piece of digital marketing for 10 to 20 minutes, and you can just go in and find out about, you know, search engine optimization if that's what you want, and in 10 minutes get a little grasp on it and go and try some things. So it's kind of like a self-serve resource, if you will. It is. For the most part, it's designed to be a self-serve resource. And then, as I say, we have the human piece with the business consultants. Accelerate Business Recovery Hub, this obviously took some time to 
put together, to think about, to massage, to make it work, and the partnerships. Where did this idea come from, Sandra? Well, it came, it's actually an idea that I came up with because I just saw that a lot of people weren't attending Zooms anymore because they just couldn't get there on our schedule. And so I thought, well, maybe we should do something that brings it to them at a time when they can use it. And the culmination of a lot of work on your part and the rest of the Aurora Chamber of Commerce is also coming up this Thursday, November the 4th. It's a summit. It's a virtual summit. Would you explain that to us? Absolutely. So it's the Accelerate Your Business Summit. Um, we have a sponsorship of admissions. So WiseBeck and FedDev Ontario have offered to make this free to all businesses who want to attend. And we have uh, wonderful speakers. A couple of them are local and a couple of them are from Schulich School of Business. So Jeff McInnes is going to do the WIN program, talk about having a winning attitude and how that helps move your, forward, move your business forward. And then we have some HR best practices on vaccination and testing with Laura Williams and business leadership in the new world of work with Stephen Friedman and some mental health in the changing work environment uh, suggestions from Suzanne Ross. Sandra, what's your view as the president and CEO of the Aurora Chamber of Commerce? What's your view of the businesses in Aurora and their leaders, it, the leaders of businesses in Aurora? Well, I would say that we have a very strong business community, and they have really come through and shown their leadership uh, through the pandemic. As, as I mentioned, we have like we have a one a strong restaurant group that has all, they've all supported one another through this and made sure that they've kept their restaurants front in mind, front of mind for our community. We as a, as a chamber have come up with the Explore Aurora campaign, which is meant to keep all of our businesses front and center for our community. And we spotlight our local businesses and we go out and do videos and we work with them to make sure that people know who they are and what they have to offer. Brilliant. So how do businesses access the hub and, and get more information about the summit and the content of everything we've talked about? So you can reach the, the Business Recovery Hub at AccelerateBusinessRecovery.ca. And if you're interested in registering for the summit, simply go to AuroraChamber.on.ca under the events section. You make it so easy. I can't thank you enough. Sandra Ferry, President and CEO of the Aurora Chamber of Commerce, thank you for your dedication to the businesses and to the people of Aurora. Thank you so much, Anne. It's been a pleasure to be here. To education next, how will universities and colleges change post-pandemic? Tina Cortez with that story. The headline from a new research from KPMG in Canada suggests that post-secondary students want an education that matches their digital lifestyle. With a breakdown of the poll is C.J. James, partner and national education practice leader, KPMG in Canada. Thanks for your time, C.J. Thank you, Tina. My pleasure, and thank you for inviting me here today. Can we start with some of the key findings of the research poll into digital learning? Absolutely, Tina. You know, in our poll, we really wanted to get a read on how post-secondary institutions need to adapt in this digital era and really specifically focus on the whole student experience, which, of course, includes their learning experience. We found that four out of five students, or 80%, like you said, really want an educational experience that matches their digital lifestyle. But that doesn't necessarily mean going back to the remote learning experience that they had during COVID 
Or does it mean that students really want a totally online learning experience? Because actually over 70% of students we surveyed were, were looking forward to returning to in-person classes. But to specifically answer your question, on the learning front, our poll did tell us that students say advanced technology. So these are robots and holograms to augmented and virtual reality. These will eventually become commonplace in all of their classrooms. So I'm thinking these tools, you know, it would take students where they otherwise couldn't go, maybe down a mine shaft, um, maybe into outer space, even the bottom of the ocean or, or inside the student, inside the human body, actually. You know, students also said that they would be comfortable using an assistant chatbot if it meant uh, freeing up their professor's time to, to help with more complex questions. Now, that I thought was really unique uh, coming out of our poll. What was very interesting, though, Tina, was what we learned most about from our poll was that what is important to the students is having an exceptional holistic experience, so both inside and, and outside the classroom as well. Did the respondents share, or do you have suggestions about how to create a better sense of community then online? Our poll told us that the vast majority of students were quite positive about how their post-secondary institutions manage um, their education experience during the pandemic. And mostly institutions did that with regular and helpful communications. But many also did feel the isolation Um, though, which I think is what you're referring to when you ask about building community uh, in the online setting. In our poll, our students did not specifically share about how they thought institutions could create a better sense of community in online learning, but I'm thinking perhaps a hybrid model of in-person and online classes will help to start bridging the gaps to uh, creating more community. But, you know, I'm going to think a little bit about how, how all of our teams Uh, at KPMG have interacted online over the past 18 months and how we create a community. You know, we're always in a learning environment with our teams. And in online learning, if I was to look back at the past 18 months, it's really important to have interaction, um, encouraging discussions, um, you know, having lots of opportunities for people to ask questions and communicate really just throughout the whole process. The other thing, encouraging cameras to be on during learning sessions are also really key. And then just getting to know members of the team or the classroom, for example, in this case, up front is also really important because it's going to make just everyone more comfortable overall um, to really participate and, and share with each other. I think that really could build some community if they're, if they're in an online learning environment. And were there challenges for students to stay motivated then? And, and how do educators address that issue? Yeah, good question. When asked in our poll about what impedes their success, students uh, in our poll did identify three main challenges. They said feelings of stress, internet connectivity, which was, which was interesting, and then they also identified level of motivation. Our poll did reconfirm, of course, that students are social beings, so there's definitely no surprise there. So over about, I think, 70% called campus life important to them, and they were looking forward to really returning to in-person classes. You know, having a great student experience on and off campus would have a great impact on a student's motivation. So I think educators and administration at colleges and universities really need to work together to create this great student experience. From our poll, we, we saw that the definition of the best student experience is one where student learning experience is personalized to them 
and that the environment all around it is conducive to their learning. And these are, these are going to be motivators um, for them. It, it was very loud and clear, over 80% in our poll, that students want their experience at these institutions to match the digital lifestyle. I think we talked about that in the beginning. There's no doubt that the COVID-19 agenda has completely accelerated the digital agenda. The world is changing rapidly, and students themselves are also changing, and they're going to demand more from their post-secondary experience. And I would think that these students are likely digital natives, right? They grew up with technology. So as you said, they want their education to match that digital lifestyle. It just seems natural. Yeah, absolutely. Digital is, is the way. It's the way of the future. Absolutely. And what advice do you have then for post-secondary institutions? Where does higher learning go from here? Well, gosh, when I look at post-secondary institutions and the future, you know, the, real, the relationship between students and post-secondary institutions is really quite unique, and it's, it's quite multifaceted as well. If I was to cut right through all the responses that we received, the results of the poll confirmed to us that there is definitely increased pressure on post-secondary institutions to deliver this more personalized experience that really needs to be designed for the needs of the whole student. So as a learner... Um, a digitally savvy consumer, and a customer. I think student institutions are already starting to take this view, and they really should continue to take a deep dive into what an exceptional student experience is, is made of. I mean, when I look at a student experience, it's really made up of a few components. There's, of course, there's the learning experience piece of it. So that's experience that's, you know, suited to their student's learning style, um, helping to maximize the student's actual learning and then bring in the personalized experience piece. And this is experience suited to a student's circumstances. And in the student's mind, they are building this unique relationship with the post-secondary institution. And then lastly, I said earlier about the customer experience. When students transact with the institution, they expect these days to receive the kind of service that they expect in other walks of life. You know, they could be online shopping, you know, with, with a retail um, outlets, you know, that, that really creates that favorable impression that leads to a foundation of this lifelong loyalty with the college or university and all colleges and universities and institutions want that lifelong loyalty. What we found is those post-secondary institutions who were already well on their digital journey and those who had a really good strategy and plan in place for digital transformation, they're the ones who have done the best in responding to COVID and also the expectation of, of, of students. So my, my advice for post-secondary institutions is look at all the three areas um, of what makes a great student experience. And your question about where does higher learning go from here? I think it's a really exciting future for higher ed. If the pandemic only accelerated the change, it was, that was eventually going to come anyways. And it just really came through loud and clear in our poll, over 80%. Again, students want their experience at the institutions to match their digital lifestyle. Um, there's no doubt COVID-19 accelerates digital agenda. The world is changing rapidly. Students themselves are changing. They're going to demand more from their post-secondary experience. And this is going to force colleges and universities to really think differently in terms of providing students this holistic and easy-to-use digital experience which will then lead to this exceptional student experience that they, all post-secondary institutions should be aiming for. 
Hear, hear. Well, I guess there's some work to do on all fronts, from educators, from institutions, from students alike. C.J. James, partner and national education practice leader, KPMG in Canada, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Dean. And how do managers measure up when it comes to remote leadership? Survey says, with Jim Lang. Well, I'm thrilled to be joined by someone who knows a lot about the the new world order, the new way of doing things with worker and supervisor and boss relationships. He's Michael French, the regional director of Robert Half Canada. Robert, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. I, I mean, I know so many people that they've admitted to me, they've been to the office Maybe they could count on their hand how many times they've been to the office since COVID started. It really has changed the dynamic between a boss, manager, supervisor, and employee. How do people communicate when they're a boss and employee when they're never around each other? Well, I got to tell you, you you think of the number of times on one hand, like I'm maybe two hands. (laughs) Um, I think I've been in possibly 10 times. So COVID really threw us a curveball. And you can go back through many corporate manuals. There was nothing. There was no section called COVID or pandemic that was going to last for this long. And you know what? You hit the number one thing is communication. But what's really interesting is we surveyed 500 workers, professional workers in Canada with 20 or more employees at companies. And we asked them, how happy are you with how your manager has, has done during the COVID pandemic? Three quarters came back saying they've done a great job. So that is really good information and a pat on our back saying, you know what? The bosses are getting it right. But you asked about communication. That was the number one area where the people said their boss could do a little bit better. Before we get to some of the other fascinating things from your survey, from your standpoint, your depth of knowledge, your experience, and you've been doing this a long time, were you a little surprised that it's over 75% of employees were were in that range where they feel their boss was being a good remote manager? You know what, personally, I think if I, if I roll the clock back to April 2020, I think bosses have had a bit of a roller coaster. There was a bit of knee-jerk reaction, maybe a little bit of over-managing, and then they got into a nice sort of groove and a rhythm. So I I think over time, they've really figured out how to do it. At the same time, I also think workers have been very flexible because many employers have. So they appreciate the effort that bosses have put in when they are being flexible. You know, it it doesn't take much to realize, you know what, people had kids at home, People now all of a sudden had elder care. There's a lot happening in people's lives when they used to be at work, and now they're at home. So I think everyone's been a little bit accommodating here. I also find it fascinating that the promotion of the work-life balance at 21% just behind communicating. And and I think I know some people, they, they said it was kind of cool to be working from home and then have their cat sit beside them on the laptop. And then, hey, if I go to go to the bathroom, it's my own bathroom. Little things like that were giving them that good work-life balance. Well, here's what's interesting. The, the, the work from home or flexibility has been on the radar for the last five to 10 years. And many companies were pushing back or, or there was resistance, but we instantly figured it out. But what was happening now as we surveyed people, because during COVID, there was nothing to end their workday. Like in the office, you pack your computer for 5, 5.30, you get on the go train or the subway or you drive home. 
When you're at home, nothing is stopping you, especially when all the restaurants and gyms and activities are canceled. Many people continued to work well past their usual quitting time. So one of the challenges we had during COVID was people were were expecting to have better work-life balance. It actually was uh, something that they struggled with. And, and companies realized that pretty quick. So you had to skill that manager in recognizing overwork. The flexibility was great. People could work sort of when they wanted, some flexible start time. But many people were working 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night because they had nothing else to do or no natural ends of the workday. So luckily, many managers noticed that right away and started sort of scheduling ends, uh, end times in people's calendars. So that was something that people thought we'd enjoy right away, but it became a bit of a challenge with the, the amount of work and the late time people were putting in. That's fascinating. Speaking with Michael French, the regional director, Robert Half Canada. Robert Half, the world's first and largest specialized talent solutions firm that connects opportunities at great companies with highly skilled job seekers. And when you're dealing with that kind of uh, the stratosphere, workers and employees and companies, there's also that whole idea about career progression that you put the work in, you reap the rewards. And in an office and building dynamic, people can see, oh, there's there's Michael. He's grinding. He's doing the thing. Here's the production. I'm going to elevate him. But when you're at home in your condo or house, how do you get that recognition? Well, then that's a really interesting challenge. And actually, I fell into this, hit, this pit. So during COVID, it was, it was more challenging. There may not have been in the early stages uh, any opportunities to progress. So rather than talk to our people about their careers, we tend to shy away and, and avoid it. And that actually then sent the message that Maybe there wasn't a future for people with the company. So it actually is better if you actually engage with your people, talk about some of the challenges, talk about where their skills are strong, and then set some timelines and some possible direction as to when you could be seeing or what has to happen to see next promotion. So don't shy away from those conversations. Embrace them and have them often. You know, you brought up something really interesting at the beginning of our conversation, Michael, about the the stress and anxiety of supervisors and boss and managers put in an untenable situation with no playbook to work from. How do workers show appreciation to their boss? How do they respond and sort of bring it back in their shoes and say, hey, thanks for doing this to give them a little appreciation? You know, bosses really, most of them did a, a really good job during COVID. They, they quickly figured out how to do this. And um, I, I, people ask for recognition all the time. You know, we always recognize our employees, emails. Uh, you send them notes. Sometimes yeah. you see companies sending them little gift baskets. But you don't often hear of the reverse. Sometimes it is nice. And, and this past Saturday, October 16th, was uh, National Bosses Day. So maybe it's nice to send a note to your boss saying, hey, Last week was National Bosses Day. I thought I'd say thank you for the great work you do leading our team. Sometimes it's nice to send the recognition upstream as well. They send it downstream. So it goes both ways. You know, because I mean, my wife and I love the movie Horrible Bosses with Jennifer Aniston. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, but not all bosses are, are like Colin Farrell. I mean, a lot of them care about their employees, worry about their well-being, and they were as worried for their employees' safety and health as their own during the whole pandemic. I think you're right there. There's the stats. Majority of bosses out there really, really do care. Care about their people and their family. And they were hyper-focused on making sure that everyone was doing well. We commonly saw a lot of articles on wellness and mental health during COVID. So it was a great, great that companies embraced uh, some of those things. But I got to tell you, uh, the numbers speak for themselves. Most people are very impressed with what their boss has done during COVID. 
Speaking with Michael French, the regional director, Robert Half Canada, I think about the future going forward as we wrap up 2021 and look ahead to 2022 and beyond, Michael. And I keep hearing from my friends who are bosses who own small to medium-sized companies that they're actually predicting a hybrid model for their employees in the future. Are you hearing the same thing? Absolutely. You know, we we hear a lot coming out of those big firms like Google and Apple, Microsoft, and what what they're doing. And, And then that trickles down everywhere because if that's what the big guys are doing, and there is a real demand for talent. There's not enough skilled people out there. You got to compete with them. So if you're trying to attract the best talent, you have to make sure you have a very flexible and accommodating workspace or people are not going to want to join you. Yeah. I mean, if you tell an employee, hey, you only have to commute downtown into wherever city you live in Canada, but four to eight times a month, they're like, oh, I'll sign up for that. Sounds, sounds great. We're also seeing companies now recruiting way outside their geography. We're hearing of companies now looking to the East Coast, West Coast, trying to find the best possible talent, not the talent in their backyard to come to the office. It sort of to make us repurpose what we use our offices for. This is awesome. You can get more details on their Twitter feed as well, at Robert Half, H-A-L-F underscore C-A-N, Robert Half Canada. Michael French is the regional director, giving us some valuable information about uh, working in the new world order. Uh, Like you said, COVID threw something no one was prepared for, employee or employer, and now we've been dealing with it on the fly, and this has been great. Thank you so much for doing this, Michael. When we come back, does Santa wear a mask? Ho, 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 ho. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This next story takes us on a Christmas adventure with the Jag Brothers. Tina is back with Does Santa Wear a Mask? Well, this is Halloween weekend, but we are off on a Christmas adventure with author Chessie Gregory. Chessie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I'm going to let you explain what is the Christmas adventure all about. Tell us about your book. My book is called Did Santa Wear a Mask? A Christmas Adventure with the Jag Brothers. And this book was inspired by my four-year-old son during the onset of the pandemic around May 2020, when he asked me the question, Mommy, will Santa wear a mask? And after realizing his question, I I asked my husband, because as an educator, I was stunned with his question. So I decided to take it further to have a little bit of understanding how do I approach his question. So I asked my husband, who is a scientist, how do you think I should ask uh, answer his question? And that was when he motivated me to decide to write the book to actually preserve the Christmas tradition for children and their families because we thought we weren't the only family that would actually need to answer this question. So we thought, how could we preserve that tradition for families during such a traumatic time for for so many uh, uh, families? And I decided to utilize the Jag Brothers, who are my sons, to actually make a difference and showcase the family what it means to empower children's voices with just one question. Hmm. Amazing. So your sons were the inspiration for this? Yes, they were. Um, we actually had capes from a long time ago when my, my younger son was born. 
was born, he expressed his favorite color was yellow. So my older son at the time, he drew a cape and he asked me if I could actually sew it. And I love sewing, but at the time I asked my mother-in-law if she could help me to put this together. So we had capes from a long time ago, which represented the brother's two favorite colors. So we utilize the cape in the story, which is also empowering children and their creativity, uh, different, different avenues, how we can express uh, that side of empowering children's voices. So I incorporate it in the story to bring to life diverse uh, superheroes to Toronto and to and a global platform as well. Okay, well, well, without giving away too much, can you tell us a little bit about the story? Oh, sure, absolutely. So what happened in the, in the story is there was a breaking news on the TV when brothers Jaylee and Jax heard that Santa closed his workshop <laughs> because the coronavirus had spread to the North Pole. They realized he would not be able to fulfill Christmas wishes, so they, they quickly sprang into action, determined to help Santa save Christmas, while following COVID-19 hygiene precautions and physical distancing rules reinforced by their parents. And even with their help, Santa still noticed he had a big problem. So this is the most interesting part, is how did Santa actually safely deliver Christmas with travel restrictions during a worldwide pandemic? Well, we can't wait to find out. (laughs) It sounds like there are many teaching moments in this book for both parents and educators. Is that right? Yes, there is. I decided from a teacher point of view, how could I actually introduce this new book to my classroom? And I decided to take, for instance, uh, teamwork. That was something that was very important to, to me. And during the pandemic, my family and I, we were, we were working together and the teamwork was coming together. And I thought in the classroom, that's something that we, we all need to remember how important it is to work together as a team. And during the pandemic, what it means to work together to actually stop the spread of COVID-19 and also from the perspective of Santa, how can we help to restore and to preserve the tradition for families while taking into consideration teamwork. So I think that was a very important element for me and this is something that teachers would love to actually showcase in their classroom. Two brothers or just people on a whole, how we can actually work together to achieve a common goal. Now, speaking of working together, a portion of book sales are going to help others. Can you tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. So a portion of the book sale will be donated to the Helping Hands Jamaica Foundation. And recently, we also partnered with them with a new walk that also helped to build schools in Jamaica. So a a portion of the proceeds will be going to help to build the new schools in Jamaica and the Jag Brothers will be helping to create cozy reading areas in those schools. So that's something that we're also looking forward to. And we're also helping in Canada to help to feed different schools as well. So, Chessie, you talked to us about your inspiration for this book. But again, where else did that drive come from to write a book and deliver such a strong message? The story came from my, and the inspiration came from my children. I didn't realize how much all the things that I've achieved was coming from my children. My first company was started 
years ago with my first child. And I realized throughout, throughout the day, I constantly get inspiration from them. And I decided I think it would be so important for me to, to showcase what it means to utilize that creativity and that inspiration from children and show how we can actually make a difference on a global platform with children because children can make a difference. And I, and I, wanted to showcase that how families can actually be engaged and have fun at the same time with their children and having been able to help other people as well. Wonderful. What can you tell us about next week's virtual book launch? Next week will be a magical yet important experience (laughs) for families and children. And I'm super excited because I will have performances spanning from Toronto's best magician, one of Toronto's best magician who represented for J.K. Rowling. And I will also have the amazing Rob on the road. Oh, we're kind of familiar with him. (laughs) Yes. So when is the the virtual book launch and, and how can our listeners participate and join? The book launch will be Saturday, November 6th, between 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. And listeners can visit Author Chessie on Instagram to register. That's terrific. And if our listeners want to get a copy of Did Santa Wear a Mask? A Christmas Adventure with the Jag Brothers, where can they get a copy? Copies are available on Amazon. And copies are also available at Chapters and Barnes & Noble. And also, if if listeners are interested to have autographed copies, they can also send me an email at chessie at com. Chesson Gregory, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Our next stop takes us to the Maintaining Creativity Conference with a talented and very funny Mary Walsh. Jim, next with those details. Joined by Mary Walsh, award-winning actress, comedian, writer, uh, cultural icon, beloved by all. And she's part of something very important coming up on November 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern Time with CSARN, C-S-A-R-N.ca, talking about ageism and other isms in the arts. And and I think about this, Mary, my wife and I, well, I, I mean, I'm 56 now, and I think about some of my wife and I, when we watch TV and movies, our favorite artists are experienced actors and actresses and comedians who are well over the age of 40 and still entertain us to this day. So I, I always get confused. Why would you have ageism in the arts with that experience tends to lead to better performances? I know it doesn't make any sense. And certainly when you look at British television, and I know we only get the best of British television here, but you see, you know, Dame Maggie Smith and, uh, and Judy Dench, Dame Judy Dench. You see a lot of older women, don't you, in British television. You even see like Margot Mar- Martindale is in everything in, in America who is an older woman and looks like an older woman, you know, and uh, you see Jane and Lily. Of course, Jane doesn't look 80. Jane Fonda, I don't no. know. They, well, whoever did the ironing on her really did a good job. Everybody should get, but get that, that guy who ironed Jane. But um, they, they did a really, and they're on. But we don't see it very much in Canada, do we? I don't know if it's polar bears or why did all older women seem to have gotten wiped out in Canada? Did they? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And, and, and we've been so blessed. Like Kathleen, Catherine O'Hara is a national treasure. Oh, my God. Yes, and she she gets better sure. as she gets older. Like I, we, my wife and I go, how could she be even funnier? And she is. 
I know, I know, I know. And Andrea Martin is on in the States in that the good fight, and oh, she yeah. is hysterically funny. You know, and I don't know. You're right about Catherine O'Hara. I forgot all about it, but... Um, uh, but, 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 you know, she would be the exception to the rule, wouldn't she, in terms of seeing anybody past the age of 50, sort of, uh, you know? And it makes no sense to me because it's, I'm, I'm, no, everyone it looks differently. We can't have everyone look at their, like they're 25. That's not reality. I mean, that's not the reality I live. And that's not reality in Canada. There's people of different ages who can provide different, you know, bring different talents to the table in every walk of life. I know, in every walk of life. And it just seems, you know, when I think about being 25, I would never, under any circumstances, even like people say, if I knew what I knew now, I could be 25. But I don't want to be 25. You know, like, I like the age I am now. Like, I'm more, you know, it's me I spend all my time with. And I'm much more uh, settled with myself, much more happy with myself than I ever was all those years, right? And um, you know, just, you know, physically, you know, things are more difficult, of course, but, uh, but emotionally and spiritually and all those other psychologically, I'm just, you know, just uh, not to get smug about it, but just, uh, I got to know myself by yeah. living with myself all these years and I'm, uh, I'm happy enough. You know, they say that the older you are, the happier you are. They've done all kinds of longitudinal studies. And there's even one now that they did during the plague. And remember when it was going, it was old people who were hit hardest. Mm-hmm. And even at that, the, the, I think Harvard did a study and they did one at Oxford in England also. Uh, and they showed that older people were happy even during the plague, even though they were the people who were targeted by this particular uh, virus, right? Uh, so yeah, it just, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, you're more content with yourself and you have all the uh, experience to bring to the table. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking with the amazing Mary Walsh, part of a great event with the, the Canadian Senior Artist Resource Network coming up on Monday, November 1st at 1 p.m. talking about ageism and other isms. And, and with that age, because wisdom and experience that can't, you, no matter how young and beautiful you are, you can't replace it. And I can remember hearing stories from my grandmother in Halifax in the Bedford Basin of World War II with the, the, the harbor filled with supply ships going to England. Like you can't find experiences like that anywhere else. So that's only something you live through. I, I'll just tell you this really quickly. And, you know, I, I, I know there are older men. Uh, we do see more older men than we see older women. So there is also sexism involved. But mm-hmm. I have to talk about the great Gordon Pinson. I did oh, a yes. film with him. Um, and anyway, it was like, um, it was like on, unseasonably and unlike Newfoundland, it was 30 degrees of heat. And they were pretending to play cricket. And so everybody had on white wool, white wool caps and things like that. And Gordon was dressed up in, uh, you know, like everyone else. And they had to run up and down this hill. They were pretending to play cricket. They were trying to suck the doctor into staying there. And he was coming into the harbor. So they were trying to play cricket on top of the hill. They were running down. Young men actually had to be taken to hospital by ambulance from heat exhaustion. And by the Jesus, did not Gordon Pinson just keep going like some kind of energizer buddy up and down that hill, dressed in white wool, 30 degrees centigrade, and he was just extraordinary. And he's extraordinary in the film, too, of course, as he is in all 
but uh, yeah, yeah. There's uh, you know there's strength and and perseverance and wisdom and knowledge and just ease that uh, that people bring uh, to the table with them, right? Uh, Mary, as we wrap up, are we is this events like this what you're doing on November the first and and getting the word out and and appreciating like Grace and Frankie and Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda realizing hey just because a woman's over fifty they can bring a lot to the table and anything in life especially in the arts. I know, I know. It's uh, you know, I'm physical labor gets a little more. Uh, you know, uh, you just have to be go a little easier on yourself. But but other than that, I can't see. You know, like when you look at uh, we we were in England for a while and we went to Turner's. We went to uh, uh, a show at the National Gallery. There was a Turner show. There was also a Rembrandt, and the Rembrandt of old old Rembrandt and old Turner were so exquisite and old Picasso, you know, like people just got, I'm, I'm just thinking of painting and look at, I mean, Joseph Conrad didn't even write in English till he was 50. So hmm. most of his books came after most of his extraordinary books came after he was 60. Uh, you know, people just keep going, don't they? Uh, you know, um, William Trevor, that brilliant Irish short story writer who'd be right up there with our own. And look at Alice Monroe. Oh my God. When was, how old was she when she won the Nobel Peace Prize? Well, then Sam, Samuel L. Jackson didn't even really make it till he was in his 40s, right? Right, right. Yep. So, yep. I so, mean, you know, yep. Uh, you, you're, pre- you're preaching the converted here for a guy in his late 50s, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Ageism and other isms in the arts. It's something we should all take a part in. CSARN, uh, the Canadian, uh, it's a great event. Uh, our, our friends at the Canadian Singer Artist Resource Network, csarn.ca, Monday, November the 1st at 1 p.m. And a big part of it is the amazing Mary Walsh, uh, Mark Delahunte. I-, I would still like to see you arm wrestle the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I think Mark could take him down. I know. I, I mean, uh, maybe maybe this year as the Warrior Queen, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> you know, I made a trip up just before the election and did a thing on on uh, on on Parliament Hill. Uh, their heart, of course, you know. Uh, Mr. Harper, when he came in and all his wisdom, made it har- harder for anyone to get talk to anyone in politics. And then COVID, of course, has made it more difficult. Mm-hmm. Mark, you know, used to just move in and, and link into them and hold on, um, pretending she was using them as, a, a, you know, to, to give her support. <laughs> An old lady needs that sort of support. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's more difficult, but I'm looking, I'm hoping, I'm ever hopeful. And, uh, uh, yes. I, I'd like to talk to uh, who is it the prime minister gets to do everything for him. That woman whose name just escapes me right now. Maybe Christ, like, Christia Freeland. Kristen Freeland. It's like oh my. She's God. got ten jobs. How Mary. many jobs? Yeah. Talk about multitasking. <laughs> she well, I mean that's what women do. Mary, you were a national treasure. Thank you so much for doing this. All the best and keep entertaining us. We certainly need it. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. Take care, darling. Bye bye. Take, take care, Mary. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.